Good morning, Orangewood. You should be very proud of your pastor and assistant pastor as they have a a daughter and a son graduating from Covenant College, which is the college of this denomination, the PCA. Uh, So they witnessed that uh, great event yesterday, and they thank you for uh, allowing them to take leave of you for this important family business. Uh, Jeff often refers to me as the half uh, pastor on the staff. And it's my privilege today to bring you the word, and you can expect half as much as you (laughs) get from him. Um, Let me pray a minute. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, because we look to you as our strength and redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Things are not always as they seem, and uh, I'll bring that up again as we look at our text for today. But let me give you an example out of my personal life of how that uh, came to be once upon a time. I went to a seminary at a school called uh, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and it's up on the north part of Boston. It's uh, located on an old Catholic piece of property, a beautiful piece of property, uh, and uh, the, the chapel itself sat on the pinnacle of the property, the highest point in Essex County. This chapel still had some of the vestiges of the... Uh, Catholic uh, chapel, some little places where Mary probably stood, and they still had the little confession booths and that type of thing. Uh, But beautiful marble, sat about uh, 500 uh, people. And we had chapel that was uh, mandatory Monday through Thursday. Usually on Monday and Thursday, one of the professors preached. And um, probably, depending on the professor, uh, if, it, if it had been somebody like Dr. Kistemacher, it would have been pretty close to full. Uh, but we didn't have people quite as good as him, but we had some good people there. And it might be 100 to 250 people full. And uh, then Billy Graham, a uh, little name dropping here, uh, Kistemacher Graham. Uh, <laughs> Billy Graham was on the board of directors of the school. And uh, he actually preached uh, one Wednesday. That's when we had the big wheels come in on Wednesday. And, I mean, people, it was standing room only. And then on Tuesdays, a very interesting dynamic happened. We had students like myself who would be asked to preach. And so I was uh, selected to preach one Tuesday. And usually the attendance was between 25 and 100, depending on how many people you could pay to be there. Um, So uh, we had, in a very conspicuous place in our building, very near the mail uh, department and everything, uh, a, a bulletin board that showed who would be preaching that coming week. It'd be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So on Monday, uh, I have to go by there. And I saw my name. Uh, it's kind of a heady thing, see my name there listed with these other people. Scared to death, never preached to that many people in my life. And uh, so I prayed with some of the professors and we marched in uh, to the sanctuary. And it was as packed as Billy Graham's time. And I'm thinking, God has anointed me greatly. (laughs) Um, As one professor was introducing me, um, the other said, I think they were expecting the other John Montgomery. In 1960, there was a John Warwick Montgomery, very famous, he was an attorney, uh, an, an apologist, a, a one who argued and debated for the faith. He put Madeline Murray O'Hare to shame in a debate. 
he uh, debated a man by the name of Altizer, uh, Thomas Altizer, who was from Emory University's uh, Candler School of Theology. That debate took place in Chicago, and Christians prayed, and uh, it was quite obvious from the outcome that the Christians won that debate too. Uh, he'd written a number of books, and when they saw the name John Montgomery, they probably thought, well, uh, we couldn't get him except on Tuesday. And uh, so things aren't always as they appear. As I got up to pray, uh, and some of you probably expecting Jeff today, uh, I should have given you the same chance, but I learned from my first illustration, I said, anybody wants to leave while I'm praying, may. And I looked up, and there were a lot less people there after I, <laughs> after I prayed. But thank you for being here today to worship your Lord, and uh, maybe a different messenger, but it's the same message uh, from the, the same book. I want to tell you about why this text is maybe not what it seems to be, at least in my personal experience, as well as the experience of some of the others that I've spoken with. uh, The text says far more than what you probably think it says. Uh, It's a text with which you're probably somewhat familiar. It appears in all four Gospels, and I'll come back to that point in just a moment. But let's go to uh, Matthew's Gospel. And I'm going to be reading in the 12th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, just two verses, 12 and 13. So this is God's Word, inspired by God's Spirit, and here's what Matthew was inspired to write to us this morning. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers, and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, let me tell you uh, one of the reasons why uh, this doesn't mean what you think it means only. Most of us think that what this passage means, and we've been taught this, I've taught this before, that basically that Jesus was against the commercialism that was taking place during uh, the worship hour uh, in and around the temple uh, when God's people were supposed to be worshiping. And that's certainly in part true. But there's a greater truth indeed that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to show you for a couple of reasons. The first reason I'm going to show you without going to Scripture is that it was perfectly normal to have money lenders money exchangers and people selling pigeons and the like, because it was required of God's people to pay a temple tax. And they either bought their currency, which was not the common currency of the day, that they had to give to the money lenders, much like you do when you travel to foreign countries and you exchange your currency for the currency of the country where you'll be uh, staying for whatever period of time. And they, they exchanged this currency. It was a necessary thing so that they could pay their temple tax in the common cur- currency. Also, uh, with regard to their offerings, uh, they sometimes gave pigeons or doves or some kinds of animals that they gave as a sacrifice as a part of their worship. Um, And so it was necessary for them to be able to have those people there for that purpose too. So it wasn't that it was bad that those money lenders and pigeon sellers were there. It's where they were that bothered Jesus and a whole lot more than that. And Jesus said, and I want you to note in verse 13, it is written, and he, and he refers to two phrases, one of which, den of robbers, I'll deal with now, and then we'll move on. That's a whole sermon for another day. 
But the den of robbers comes out of uh, Jeremiah chapter 7. And let me back up to say that I mentioned I'd say something else about this text that appears in all four of the Gospels. It appears in Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke in the same time frame of Jesus' life and ministry, right after the triumphal entry, which would take us back in our calendar to April 1st when we celebrated Palm Sunday. And in each of those Gospels, it appears there in time and place. And in John's Gospel, strangely, it appears in the second chapter, very early on in the ministry of Jesus, which has led many people to say and conclude, and I with them, that there were actually two different accounts of the cleansing of the temple, as this passage is commonly referred to as. Two different accounts. Which, to me, that just heightens it even more that it was twice that Jesus had to do this. And now we go, interestingly, to Jeremiah, and he cursed the temple twice himself. And chapter 7 is one of those instances, and chapter 26 is another. And without taking the time to read this passage, uh, basically what uh, chapter 7 in Jeremiah is all about, which has the terminology, a den of robbers in it, is the only other place you're going to find it. So Jesus was referring to Scripture when he was speaking. It's a passage that basically has the Lord speaking and says, look, folks, it angers me that you live your lives without much circumspection during the week, and then you come here on Sunday to church and you say, we're delivered. Now, certainly there is a truth to that fact that we come and we proclaim that we're delivered by the grace of God, and it's oftentimes an opportunity for many of us to get our spiritual lives back on track, to get our spiritual batteries recharged. But those who live their lives as though, as we might say, They're not Christians, but they come to church and act like they're delivered and act like Christians for an hour a week. And then they have no intention of being anything other than non-Christian type of living people the the next week. Jesus had a real problem with that, and he's angry with that. And he said, you're robbing the church, you're robbing yourself of the spirituality that's to be ours and the witness that's to be ours as well. But going to uh, Isaiah chapter 56 Uh, This is uh, more to the point of where I want to uh, spend our time this morning. If you were to picture uh, the strange way in which worship took place in those days, where maybe the foyer and the patio were reserved for the guests who believed in Jesus, but they really weren't members. And so they hadn't attained to the lofty position of membership in our church. And so we let them worship out there, maybe through closed-circuit TV or something like that. And at least they had a place for the Gentiles who believed in Jesus or, or, well, in their case, believed in in God. Uh, But we would have a place for those who believe in Jesus or those who come to seek faith in Jesus Christ or to seek what grace is all about or what this gospel story is all about. And they were in another part of the building reserved for them. Well, one of the problems was, is these Gentiles, that was anybody who wasn't a Jewish uh, Christian, as we might say it today, uh, these Gentiles, they were trying to worship. Part of their worship was prayer, certainly. And that's where the moneylenders and the pigeon sellers set up business. And that's what got Jesus so angry they were prohibiting the free worship of these non-Jewish people who loved God. 
And he was quite upset with that, and they were encumbering their worship. And so he wanted them out of the outer uh, court uh, to do the business that was necessary and convenient for them to do for the people of God. The greater message here in this passage in Isaiah 56, where we're going to see, again, a word, house of prayer, mentioned a couple of times. This is what Jesus had in mind. This was his scripture when he referred to house of prayer and den of robbers. And it further points that it was a lot bigger uh, than just a matter of commercialization taking place uh, in the church. Starting at verse 5, he, uh, God says, I will give my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, these would be the people in the outer court, desired to worship the Lord, who the Jews prohibited from coming any closer than just the outer court, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast to my covenant, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices which we don't do anymore per se, but we have our own way of sacrificing, will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, I will gather yet others to him beside those already gathered. So the Lord wanted his temple to be a free place in which people could come to worship him, whether they were Jews or Gentiles. He wants today... Orangewood Church to be a place where people feel the freedom to come, not to be relegated to a patio or a foyer until they make the grade and become members. People who would come and be among us and be equals with us, who would already have a profession of faith in Christ and become members, or who would come to profess faith in Christ and understand the grace and the gospel, but to be here among God's people and feel that they belong before they actually belong. And that's what God wanted. And there was a greater sin at score than just some money lenders and pigeon sellers uh, working in this uh, situation. So this morning, uh, let's uh, talk about several things uh, as we ask the question, is Orangewood a house of prayer? And I'm not going to give you a nice, neat, tidy little definition of what a house of prayer is. Uh, it's not that I don't have my own opinion, but I'm going to let you form your own opinion as to whether you are a person of prayer, individually and personally, and whether we collectively and corporately and publicly are a people of prayer, a church of prayer. And I want to first say that by no means am I unaware of the prayer that takes place in this church. I'm probably not aware of as much prayer that takes place as does but the prayer that I'm aware of is marvelous, and so I'm by no means saying that there's no prayer that takes place in this church. All right? Don't go home and say that. Promise? Okay. And, and I could point out, and I had one lady email me and said, we know your sermon's coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, how can we pray for the sermon? And there's a group of ladies that have been praying for the sermon. I mean, that is super stuff. I... I was getting my microphone this morning, and I ran into David Castor trying to find my mic, and he says, well, I put it on Jeff's de desk. I thought he was preaching, and I prayed for him. I guess it was wasted prayer. Uh, <laughs> not so. 
God knew I was preaching and he just transferred it to my account. And he probably knows that Jeff needs a little prayer anyway. He's already so proud of Jesse and then she's getting married on the 8th of June to boot and all that stuff. He needs a little humbling probably. So, you know, pray for him too. Uh, Joe's, I'm sure, very proud, as they both should be, and we should all be, because when something good happens to one of us, it happens to all of us. That's, that's what the body of Christ is all about. When something bad happens to one of us, we should all taste salt. That's the kind of relationship that we're to have together. So I want to talk about the robbers of prayer, the things that keep us from being the prayerful people and the prayerful church that we might otherwise be, It's not going to be an exhaustive list, but it's going to be a careful list. I want us to talk about the relationships of prayer and the reformation of prayer. First, let's uh, talk about this uh, whole business of of the robbers of prayer. Last week, uh, Jeff and I and uh, Zach and Joe and uh, Larry were invited by uh, Don Sweeting, Dr. Sweeting, who's the president of Reformed Theological Seminary here in Oviedo. And he's only been here about a year. He preached here fairly recently, some of you may recall. It was last year. And he basically wanted to know how he could help us. And and he sprung for lunch, too, which is a cool thing. And uh, and, and Jeff and I never pass up a free lunch. But uh, Jeff turned the uh, thing around a little bit and said, tell me something, uh, uh, Don, said, You've been a pastor in several churches. Now you're not in a, a, an official pastoral role as such, certainly doing a lot of pastoring as president of RTS. But uh, what, what would you do different if you went back in the church uh, now that you're away from it a little bit? And, and he said, let me preface it by something, and I got his permission to share this. Uh, he said, let me tell you something about Presbyterians. And, and this wasn't an indictment. Uh, but this was a general description that he was giving of folks like us. He said, we tend to be educated. We tend to be organized. I mean, we've got the best biblical system of government of any denomination, we say probably, and we tend to have money. All three of those things, if we're not careful, any one of the three, two of the three, all three, could be robbers of prayer. Because we could be very independent in our spirit. And independency is a robber of prayer. That is an enemy of prayer. You can do without God, no prayer needed. Dependent on God, that's what prayer is all about. Uh, Plenty educated, don't need to check with him and his word and prayer. Don't need his opinion. We've got good educations, smart people. Um, We are very organized. we don't need him to bless our plans, or, or we'll make our plans and then ask him to bless him, rather than ask what his plans are and ask him to implement those plans through us. And we've got money, and all those things can be a hindrance. And those things can lead to another manifestation of this whole business of, of, of being robbed of prayer, and that is we go to this Bible verse that doesn't exist, that so many people quote, God helps those who help themselves. Right? And we have this independent spirit, uh, and, and we have the other idea too. I don't bother the man upstairs unless it's something really important. Well, how do you think the man upstairs thinks about that? Um, 
we need to be very much engaged with this God, as we'll talk about in the relationships of prayer here in just a moment. But I actually spoke to a pastor once, and you'd probably know him uh, if I mentioned his name, many of you. And the subject of prayer came up, and this is what he said, in essence. He said, you know, I'm kind of an A-type personality. I'm a doer. Uh, I get things done. I'm active. Uh, I really think prayer is for the passive and the non-doers. Uh, I, I'm so busy doing that that's how I contribute to the kingdom. Other people, they're not as busy as I am, and they need to be the prayers. And um, I just, somehow that didn't, that smelled like smoke. It didn't ring true for me. And I don't think it rings true for you either. But another thing you'll find in church is you'll get hustled out of your spirituality. And we will be the ones guilty of doing it, we pastors. We'll get you so busy that you haven't got time to pray. And you'll get so caught up in thinking that being busy and serving is what it's all about, that there's no time to pray. And you need to repent of that, and we need to repent of that, who force you into those corners as well. There's this whole business of, um, of, of having models in the church. Where are your models? Are, are you a good model as a mom or a dad for your children? Because prayer is more caught than taught. Are you a good model at OCS as a teacher, a coach, a faculty member? Where, where are these kids learning how to pray? By watching us. And if they see a lack of it, they'll see that that's not such a necessary thing in life. Sometimes uh, we don't have elders who are stepping up and modeling prayer. We need as elders to be modeling prayer to you as the congregation. Others of you need to be good models to others of us who need to be more exposed to what a person of prayer really looks like. And then sometimes you'll run into some folks who just are not advancing the cause of prayer at all. Uh, One of the churches I served had a Wednesday night prayer meeting. At that prayer meeting, it was one of the most difficult things I ever went to in the week in my life. It was painful. It was so sterile. It was so impersonal. It was so boring that... I mean, I was paid to go, so I went. I mean, I've always said, I'm paid to be good, you're good for nothing. And so we'd go, and, and people would pray for uh, somebody's aunt with a hangnail in Kansas, and just stuff that just I couldn't get too excited about. And uh, one of the elders, and, and let me tell you, he's, he was a good and godly man. I'm going to say some negative things, but he, he was that. He showed up every time, God bless him. Sometimes I wish he hadn't or didn't, but um, because every time he was there, every time he prayed, and he prayed every time he was there, he prayed in some part of his prayer that uh, thanked God that he uh, rent the veil in twain. And, and I just don't talk that way. That is beautiful King James language. It's in the book of Hebrews, and it refers to a marvelous, beautiful truth that when Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, those of us who prior to that time, and speaking specifically to the Jewish people who only had access to God through the priest, who could go into the Holy of Holies on the other side of the veil, and only that once a year, that now when Christ died and, and heavens opened up and received him, the veil was torn in two. Say torn in two, please. Don't say 
Brendan Twain ever again. <laughs> say it to yourself, say it in your private prayer, but it just doesn't, it, and, and people, uh, well, I'm, anyway. So let's talk about the relationships of prayer. A beautiful thing happened on, on Wednesday night. The beautiful thing that happened was God sent in a woman who had gone through a divorce, and she prayed like she knew God personally, and like she talked to him a lot. And she didn't necessarily have a lot of theological language in her prayers, which is okay uh, to have that. It's okay not to. And she changed the whole DNA, the whole dynamics of Wednesday night prayer. People started praying for things personal. Uh, she ended up remarrying her husband. Uh, things were happening where prayer was being answered. We weren't hung up on hangnails anymore. Uh, it was a beautiful thing. Why? Because Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship. You've heard that dozens and dozens of times. Christianity is a relationship. We were uh, speaking in, in my small group the other evening about relationships. And we didn't get through with the conversation. But one of the things we latched on to was the word trust. That's, that is vital to a relationship, isn't it? Another thing that's very close akin to trust is a confidence. Do you believe that there is a God? And, and, and do you believe that he bends over backwards, as Scripture says, to listen to you pray? He can't wait to have you come to him just to talk to him? He's thrilled when his children come to him with the littlest of stuff. God, it's broken. I can't fix it. I'm broken. I can't fix it. My son, my daughter is broken. I can't fix it. God, you can fix it. And do you trust and have confidence that he can if he will? That he has the power to do anything that you ask or imagine? That nothing's impossible with him? It may not be his will to do what you ask, and that's why we pray your will be done and, and conform my will into your own. But it's a personal relationship, and it's a beautiful thing to spend time with the Lord uh, in, in that way. Um, think of the Lord's Prayer. Think of Psalm 123. Two groups of, of thought that are filled with personal pronouns. Our Father. When Jesus told his followers to pray, Our Father, that blew them away. Oh, you mean he's not distant out there? Detached? Maybe not too concerned? Maybe napping? Maybe on vacation? Maybe call waiting? Uh, maybe he'll get the text later? No, he's awake all the time. Can't wait to talk to you. Can't wait for you to talk to him. Can't wait for you just to be with him. And, and he's immediately accessible to us. And that's a beautiful thing. Prayer, I've often said, is, is like a muscle. Uh, if you work out, your muscles get stronger. If you pray, your, your prayer gets stronger. One of the best ways to learn to pray is look at some of the scriptural prayers. Look at David's prayers. Another is to be around people who pray. And people like that woman who came into our group. And here's another one, and some of you might think this isn't the best way. The best way to learn how to pray, or one of the best ways, is just to start praying. Teach yourself through the experience of interacting with your holy God, with your real live God. Exercise that muscle, muscle and watch it get strong. Let's talk about the Reformation of prayer. 
I have a confession to make to you, and I, and I mean it seriously. I made it in the earlier service. I pastored a church for five years, one for 12 and one for 19 before I came here. I never made prayer a major feature of the church. Shame on me. If I had it to do over again, if I could go back, I'd, I'd make prayer a greater part of my personal life, and I'd see that it became a greater part of the personal lives of the people that I was led to pastor, and that I would see it be a greater part of the corporate life of the churches that I pastored. Don Sweeting said the same thing. He said, boy, prayer, I, I'd, I'd make that a major feature of the church. Jeff had us uh, read a book of staff called Transformational Church. It's uh, written by Ed Stetzer and uh, Tom Rayner. Interesting book because it takes a different approach in analyzing churches. Uh, as I mentioned last week when we were talking about performances and the like, uh, there's so much pressure on us as pastors to put butts in the seat, build buildings, uh, have big budgets, do lots of baptisms, and that's the measure of the man, that's the measure of the church. When pastors get together, how many of you got on Sunday morning? I, I just, you know, that just wants me to end the conversation. Except when I've come to Orangewood and it's a lot bigger, it's a lot more fun to say how many people I've got in church on Sunday here. We've got. But um, here, this, this transformation of church. Basically, I'll, I'll quickly give you a little uh, thumbnail sketch of the book. It, it describes trans, transformation of churches as churches who make disciples whose lives are transformed by the gospel and whose lives, which are transformed by the gospel, are transforming the culture in which they live. Two things real important. A lot of churches don't make disciples to transform them. A lot of churches that do don't have them as a goal to be transforming the culture in which they live. Two very important things. So marks of these churches, rather than how many people are in the seats, how big the budget is, how big the buildings are, uh, vibrant uh, mission, a vibrant leadership, uh, vibrant community, uh, vibrant uh, worship, and vibrant prayer. Now let's go totally into prayer for a minute. Here's what they say in these transformational churches about prayer. They make prayer uh, something that precedes everything they do. In, in these churches, by the way, 73% of all the people in transformational churches so defined say that it's normal, it's common for me to see people praying in our church. What you have people doing is if the greeters are going to meet at a certain time to greet people before the service, they meet a half hour before that to pray for the guests and the members that are coming, hurting people, people that, for whom Orangewood could be strange, can't find the bathroom from the sanctuary in spite of the signs. Um, People pray for the worship team. What would it be like if some of you, a good number of you, came to this service, but in the first service, during the first service, you were praying for Jeff in the worship experience? What if you were praying for the finances of the church? What if you were praying for the staff of the church? What if you prayed before every event, Relay for Life, movies? What if you prayed for the school, the headmaster, the principals, the teachers, the parents, the children. What if you did that on a, on a regular basis, on a big basis? Would there be a change? 
I think everybody would say, it sure couldn't hurt. And most of us say, I think it would help. And so prayer precedes everything. Prayer is, if it's not the prominent feature of worship, it's a prominent feature of worship. PCA churches, preaching, prominent feature of worship. You're stuck with it. If it's good, good for you. If it's not, bad morning. What if prayer were a feature or a prominent feature also? Another thing about these churches is that they know their communities. They know the principal where their kids go to school. They know their kids' teachers' names. They know the fire chief's name. They know the police chief's name. They know the school board members' names. They pray for those people on a regular basis. And they sometimes send them notes. So I just want to let you know, you don't know me, but we prayed for you today. Thank you for serving us. Wow. How would you feel on the school board if you got a note like that? Maybe on Orangewood Stationery. Cool stuff, right? Um, they do prayer walks in the community. They'll, two or three people just go through a, a street, and they'll stop in front of a house, and they'll say, if there's a marriage here, we'll pray for the marriage. Pray for the husband and wife, knowing the state of marriage in our world today. Pray for parenting. Pray for the kids. Uh, pray for the health of the people in the house. Sometimes people will come out, and they'll say, what are you doing in our neighborhood? And they'll tell them. And then they sort of look sheepish and say, gee, thank you. I mean, they know their community, and they're transforming their community. Reformed theologians have always said we are to be reformed in our theology and reforming. All right? So I don't call them transformational churches. I call them reformational churches. Um, this, is, this is the good stuff that's going on. Are we a church that's literally a house of prayer? Are you a person that's praying as much as you feel that you should be praying? Those are questions you've got to answer for yourself. I'm calling the elders out. Guys, wrestle with this question. Are we a house of prayer? If not, what do we need to do to become one? Maybe you'll assess that we are. And what do we need to do to maintain being a house of prayer? Uh, wrestle with that question. I think it could do marvelous things for this church. We're going to have a 30-day prayer emphasis starting two weeks from today. Uh, this is somewhat of the application of, of today's sermon. When you came in today, you saw a couple of poster boards to the left of the patio and just ahead of you as you came in the six doors uh, into the sanctuary. There are 96 prayer slots for you to sign up. We're going to, there are available out in the lobby, in little baskets, a label like you would put a name on and paste on to an envelope. You just tear off the back and you go and find a 15 minute increment period of time in which you'll pray. And there are six slots for every 15 minutes. So don't take up all the room on that little 15 minute slot. It'd be two side by side, two, two. It'd be six. 486 people can sign up to pray. And if you get there and they're all taken, wonderful, praise God, you know, initial or sign up somewhere else. But put your name and put your email address on this because we're going to email you some things that we would suggest you might pray for. We've got vacation Bible school coming up. Lots of, she, what, did, what did Maggie just say? 40 kids we don't know the names of? That's 40 potential kids that could come to know Jesus. 
Pray for the teachers. Pray for the school as it ends. We should have been praying for the prom. Uh, pray for Jeff on Sunday. Pray for the finances. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll roll out opportunities. 15 minutes will go pretty fast if you'll look at this. We're going to start two weeks from today. You could start early if you wanted to. We, I've talked to the elders. They will not forbid you to start early. All right? You, you may go early if you wish. But put one of these up there. There's a little card in baskets below the tables where you could write down as a little reminder to yourself what 15-minute period of time you said you'd pray. So you put that in your pocket and you go home. And we're going to pray for 30 days. I think it ends on something like the 19th of June. And I think it's going to be transformational. I think it'll be reformational. Uh, I think we've got some great opportunities to step it up here. And I'd like to be a part of that with you. Let's pray. Father, for those of us who admit that there are lots of little robbers of prayer, let's lock those things up and throw away the key and get to this business of prayer and understand that, um, that prayer is not the battle. Uh, I mean, prayer is, it's not the praying for the battle, that prayer is the battle. And it's all about a relationship with you and others with whom we can pray and for whom we can pray. And it's all about being reformed and reforming ourselves, our church, our culture. And thank you, Father, that when we see something tangible, measurable, demonstrable, something significant, something worthy of praise, that we point to you and give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.